Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ezra Klein Show. All of you wonderful people in podcast land. We've got a great show today. We've actually got someone a lot of you have been asking for since we launched. Someone I've wanted to interview for the show for a long time. Andrew Sullivan. Andrew Sullivan is really one of the godfathers of blogging. I mean, among many, many, many other things. Tyler Cohen, the, the economist and writer, has argued that Sullivan is one of our most influential living public intellectuals. He was the intellectual driver of the gay marriage movement. He was the editor, uh, often very controversially, of The New Republic. He was one of the first major writers who was out with HIV in the 90s. And he's just had an extraordinary career. Certainly affected my career quite a lot. I got into blogging after Andrew Sullivan, and, and I would also say Josh Marshall really drove that platform forward quite a bit. And I learned a tremendous amount from him over the years. Also got into a large number of fights with him over the years, which has always been fun. He recently closed up his blog, The Daily Dish. Uh, I think that was about a year ago now. And he has just started writing again for New York Magazine, had a big piece on Donald Trump a couple weeks ago that, that many of you may have read. We talk about that in here. But we also talk a lot about his life since hanging up his, his keyboard. So he's been meditating a lot. We talk about his 10-day silent meditation retreat. We talk about how he got into blogging. We talk about what it was like for him during the HIV plague of the 90s. We talk about how his faith was strengthened by that and, and how it sustained him and why he believes in God and how he thinks about the way that informs his politics. We talk about political correctness, where, where he and I have some different views. We talk about Barack Obama and Donald Trump and, and the broader political sphere. This is a, a was a really, really fun conversation to do. I think a lot of you are going to enjoy it greatly. As always, I have three requests for you if, if you are a fan of the show. The first is to share it. Please go on Facebook. Please go on Twitter. Share, use your email. Share the show with your friends. The, the way the Ezra Klein show de develops a bigger audience is 
because you, if you are actually liking it, if you are finding value in it, tell other people that it might be worth their time to it. It really means a lot to me when you take the time to do this. So, so if you have done it in the past or you are going to do it now, genuinely, thank you. My second request is to listen. If you are a fan of the show, I think you'll really like the other podcast I'm a part of, The Weeds, where I talk every week with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff about the hottest policy topics around. We get very deep into things like healthcare and inequality and economics and all the weedsy topics that so many of you love. So if you are listening to this show and you enjoy it, you should probably be listening to that one as well. The final request I have is to email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. It's always funny to me. I get a lot of emails and people say, oh, to whichever intern is reading this. I actually read this myself. There's no intern with access to the email account. And I really appreciate it. I appreciate the feedback and I really appreciate the guest suggestions. A lot of the guests who've come on the show have been people I got the idea to talk to from all of you. So send me guest suggestions. I also love to know what you want to know from people, either what are the kinds of questions you wish I would ask of everybody or what are the questions you wish I would ask of someone specific you're suggesting. I take all that stuff seriously. I want the show to have value to you. And I think the way that will happen is if I am listening to you. So please email over again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. All that said, here's Andrew Sullivan. What happened to the beard? Oh, you know, it's funny. When I, um, I guess when I, when I quit, I kind of just shaved it off. It was kind of a psychological like. Uh, Wait, but I saw you after you quit. You had the, the most amazing beard I've ever seen in person in my life. Really? Is this on the record? It's all on the record. <laughs> the, the people, the people are going to know that. We're recording everything. It was, it was a everything. pretty, you know, it was, it was, was Whitman esque. It was, it was, yes. it was Darwinian. But eventually, I figured I was turning into Santa Claus, and I just <laughs> there was there was just something about that I didn't want to do. So I kind of, and also I just wanted to like signal a new start, a new time in my life. You know, you're too young, but uh, at at fifty fifty ish, you kind of I don't know. It's a it's a it's a kind of reckoning, really. And so you kind of I, I just did it just because I was tired of it. I'd had a beard for fifteen years, and everybody now had a beard. So time to move move it's, on. It's time to move back. You're going to go fully. I, I, I have scruff. I know you have scruff. So I'm expecting that uh, as this continues, you're going to go fully clean shaven and show up in a suit. <laughs> 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 Clean shaven, you know, it's funny. I, I look, the thing is that I was always I, a bit like you. Everybody used to call me cute. And I hated it. <laughs> is that how I am? <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> that word, you know, really irritated me. Mainly because I, I think being a, a homo, it, it just made me feel feminized in some ways. And. I'd always been called super cute, and so I was like, screw this. No one who I wanted to sleep with wanted to sleep with me because they were all these big, burly, hairy, bearded dudes. So I figured, well, I'm going to try and become a big, burly, bearded dude and see if I can get laid with these people. <laughs> <laughs> and lo and behold, it worked. It what, worked. what is the descriptor you're, you're looking for? What are you hoping people say when they see Andrew Sullivan walking down the street? Oh, Jesus, I don't think about that kind of thing because God knows what they think when they see me walking down the street. It would, it would make me supremely paranoid. <laughs> <laughs> I have to just ignore that. Um, but uh, no, I also wanted to get better, get well. And so I changed my diet. I added a whole new regimen of meditation every day, of exercise well, every when day. When is this? When are we talking about here? Last year. Or so. Oh, last year. Yeah. Okay, wait. So tell me about this. Tell me about the what, – what's the new diet? 
Well, I eat no flour. Okay. And I eat no sugar. No flour and no sugar. Yeah. That is difficult. It is. The flour stuff was mandatory in as much as I had, I was covered with hives. I was itching and it took about two years to diagnose it as wheat allergy. So I actually do, I'm not a trendy glutard. I'm, I'm a, <laughs> I have I'm, not heard of glutard before. <laughs> well, <laughs> I use that expression because otherwise it just sounds so smug. You know, I'm gluten-free. It's just like, I know why people are irritated by it. So I, I have I, a whole defense of the gluten-free diet that has nothing to do with gluten being bad. What, what is that? So I am not gluten-free. I, I just cover myself in gluten as part of my morning ritual. But if you look at the medical evidence we have, I think like one of the big questions is how do you harness placebo effects? They're so powerful. They're often more powerful than or as powerful as the medications we actually use. And so things that allow people to do something harmless to themselves, but that will give them a placebo effect boost in health and well-being actually seems super valuable to me. Mm. And my view is that the gluten-free diets are a version of that, mm. that they are not actually for most people driven by any real allergy to gluten, but people are probably getting a real benefit out of them simply out of placebo effect. And that seems valuable. Yeah. If you can bear to give up bread, pizza, sure. pasta, and all the amazing things that you, you don't realize how much flour is in everything until you try and stop eating it. And you end up just eating meat and vegetables. Right. Really. Aside from life no longer being worth living, yeah. you feel a lot better. You feel great. <laughs> and wait, how's giving up sugar? So I, I was with um, a – I was with – I did an interview with Peter Thiel recently and he funds an immortality institute. An institute that among other things is trying to figure out what can we do to really extend life. And so I asked him what has he learned and I thought he'd tell me, oh, there's – this chemical and you can only synthesize it in space, you know, something like that. And he just said, sugar is really bad for you. Yeah, it is. And we eat way too much of it because we can't help ourselves from our genetics and our evolutionary pathway. But no, I, I always had a sweet tooth. I mean, I would eat M&Ms every night watching John Stewart, but not doing it at all. I mean, I've gone from here, I sound extra smart. I went from 21% body fat to 14% in nine months. That's great. Yeah. My weight has not really changed a huge amount. It's like down about 10 pounds. But yeah, so I did, 20, I did a half an hour of cardio most day, interval cardio, and I have a trainer. And then I would spend half an hour every day meditating and learning how to meditate. And then I then I took a 10-day completely silent meditation retreat. Tell me about how that was. Oh, you know who got me into it? It was Sam Harris. Yeah, he does a lot of... He's a huge meditation, meditation. Uh, person. And uh, I've always been intrigued by it, partly from a Christian point of view, because I, I just sort of think the meditative tradition has been far too overlooked in the Christian... I think uh, that's not where Sam Harris comes to it from. No, I know. This is, but <laughs> it isn't. But, you know, I think that's Sam's problem, not mine. I, I, uh, <laughs> the actual experience of going, I went to um, the Insight Meditation Society Center in Barry, Massachusetts, which is a, con a converted old convent in a beautiful forest. There were 90 people there. And you live there in a dorm. And it's a total noble silence means you're not even allowed to look at anybody in the eyes. And... No reading is allowed. Holy shit. And you're in a cell and you get up at 5.30 and you either eat or, which is three brief periods a day, and then you, for the rest of the time, you are either sitting or walking in silent meditation. So you're spending from 5.30 in the morning till 7.30 at night meditating. And 45 of those people were there for three months doing that. <sighs> 
and 40 of them were there for like six weeks. And I was snuck in, thanks to Sam, for 10 days. And it was, all I can tell you is it extremely grueling. Was uh, this your first meditation retreat of any yeah, kind? Yeah, it was. So you had yeah. done like a three-day or something? No, I went right into the, the hardcore. And, and this place is very hardcore, too. I like doing hardcore things if I'm going to do them. I'm curious about what, what it could really do. And part of it was curious as to how far away I could get from blogging. That How is far? <laughs> that is as far away as you can get from yeah. blogging. So I spent that year thinking, I have got to detox from this whole crazy machine. And this was one way of doing it. I could tell you about what happened on it. but I, I would need... like you to tell me about what happened on it. We're just, we're just going to do two hours personal. here. On... It's kind of personal. Well, you but, said you could. <laughs> uh, you... <laughs> if you don't want to talk about it, we don't It's have pretty to. wonderful in some ways. And I have a very strong kind of introverted monastic kind of impulse, which no one really believes, but is actually true. But what happens is that when you get rid of all the distractions that we live with every day, like every tweet, every news story, everything to eat, every commercial, every friend, every face, everything, you realize what you've been distracting yourself from. It takes, takes a few days of just being to sort of really come into contact with what you're really feeling. And for me, again, this was a total surprise to me. I thought I was going to go and sit there in bliss for 10 days and chill. And I was for about two days. Then I was walking around the forest in silence, of course, on the third day. And um, I was kind of completely overwhelmed by a feeling of all I can say is extreme suffering. I was... I was kind of taken back to my childhood in, in an almost completely vivid and utterly uncontrollable way. I was five, six, seven, eight, or nine. And my mother is bipolar and was taken away from me and put in a mental home when I was four and subsequently throughout my childhood. And being a sensitive little boy, I kind of absorbed a lot of her extreme pain. And, you know, I've had 25 years of psychotherapy <laughs> to handle seeing my mom taken away by people in white coats. And they didn't know what they were doing in the 60s. You know, it was terrifying. Right. And then they told me that they were electrocuting her. It was just the whole thing was. So that's what I felt for two days. Just unbelievably vivid as if I was still there. And you realize I walk around with this every day. <laughs> It's still right here. Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of therapy about it. I've figured it out. I have my mother's coming to see me in Provincetown this summer. But boy, was I surprised and amazed really at that. And what happened on the other end of those two days? It lifted. It lifted. I very much felt, again, you wonder if you're going crazy because you can't even talk to anybody about this. So you're in complete silence. You can't, like you would if you were in a normal place, you were having this, suddenly these issues came up and you felt bad. You would call your friend or you would talk to your husband or you would mm -hmm. like, you know, and you couldn't go anywhere. So it kind of really forces you there. For some reason, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who is this, my relationship with her became very, suddenly began to revive in my psyche and that kind of calmed me down. And then it was... Woo. Then it was, then it was, hmm. then I was uh, okay again. 
So, I, I mean, what I drew from that in many ways is the thought that we do live, I mean, the way the meditators say, you know, our real lives and not necessarily the lives we think we're living. Right. In some ways, when you kind of zoom out from that experience and you look at contemporary America or the West, you just look at this and you think, wow, I mean, what an incredible amount of busyness mm -hmm. and distraction that is, in fact, an entire economy built upon it. And what is Western humankind really distracting ourselves from? You know, you have those kind of big thoughts when you're out there with nothing else to do. So it was a really, I would say, grueling but really positive experience. And I continue to do it every day and integrate it into prayer, which is kind of important for me. It was a very good thing to do, even though it was really rough. And it, it, it didn't help that a good friend of mine committed suicide like three days before I went. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. No, it's just awful. Ten days after you got back from the 10-day meditation retreat, were you different in the way you went about your day? Or did you snap back by that point to checking the internet, you know, just feeling normally distracted? It took more than that. There was no point in which I snapped back. Mm -hmm. Because by that time, I'd also kind of weaned myself off the news. But Trump, God damn him. Uh, the opposite of meditation. <laughs> the opposite of meditation. In a human the, being. The, yes, the pure, constant, twitchy fascism of the guy just kind of just it just began to penetrate my consciousness. I had really hoped to move towards writing about other things like the book that I'm starting on is is a book about Christianity. And I wanted to shift to writing about religion, maybe literature, hmm. because, you know, 15 years of doing that every day was kind of mind-blowing in the end. And what are you going to do? I mean... Just when you think you're just out. Just when you think you're out. <laughs> well, and then because I think, you know, I, I realized, I think somewhere around February when my year off was kind of, I mean, not it was all in my head, but my year off was coming to an end. Could you live with yourself if you hadn't done something, written some, I mean, that's what I do. I'm a writer, right? And I really felt this was history and that it's a moment and you have to stand up and be counted if you, if you want to really do your duty. I mean, I, I don't want to sound noble, but I, I really, I've, as you can tell from that piece, you know, I'm really truly disturbed by this man and truly concerned about the culture that he's thriving in. And every day when I was blogging, you know, all these thoughts I would have about the public wheel, as it were, I could get rid of. So they built, it just kept building mm -hmm. until I realized I have to just like put all this shit down. So that's when I was also talking to various people about a place to write them in. And I, I've been incredibly lucky to get a writing gig, which allows me to write a piece at 8,000 words and to mm -hmm. take a few weeks to figure it out. You know as well as I do that blogging out a 300-word post can be great. And, you know, it's part of, I mean, for God's sake, I, was, I did it a long time before other people did it. But uh, to actually go back to writing something lengthy that you could go over again, that you could re-edit, that you could polish, that you could, you could really put through the ringer until you get something that you really kind of okay with, I mean, I'm never, I never love what I write. I'm always just full of hate, self-hatred about it. But, uh, <laughs> that's been wonderful. I mean, because also, as you know as well, you know, our media culture is not friendly at this point. It may no. be getting more friendly, but 
it's not friendly to the 8,000 word piece, you know? And oh, I just, uh, I was going to agree with not friendly and then just put a period. Yeah, TLDR, right? And <laughs> I saw, you know, that actually long form pieces, I saw a piece, I think the other day, that they actually do attract people, people for a longer I, time. I think it's friendly to long form. I think our media culture, I don't want to say it's become because I don't pretend to know what it was like at, at every other era, but I just don't think it is friendly. But insofar as it's friendly to anything, I think it's friendly to long form. Hmm. I think that there is on the part of readers a desire to reward effort. I think there's on the part of other writers a lionization of longer, particularly more narrative, not only more narrative work. In in some ways, I think it's very dismissive of blogging. I think it's very dismissive of what people now call smart takes. I think it, it's much unfriendlier to other forms that have become commoditized, even though doing those forms well, I think is really difficult. I think that's changed over the last 15 years, partly because what the internet allowed you to do for the first time was these mm -hmm. sort of what we now call hot takes, which is roughly what blogging was around the clock. And so we were all infatuated with it. And right. that, let's face it, is the business model at this point, these huge firehose content machines that just churn out little bits and bobs in the hope of getting other people to peddle corporate advertising, not to touch a, a nerve, but... I think you may be right. I, I mean, I, my own sense is that what I want to do now is write these long-form pieces and and write books. And I get the feeling that books, too, are, are becoming fashionable again. I mean, in other words, we've had this fantastic new toy. Mm -hmm. We've played around a million different ways with it. I think the entire economic model of the web is about to collapse. Oh, um, really? Well, I think there's a content bubble of, of, of sort of huh. massive proportions. And I go, I very much go, I mean, I obviously have a lot of reason to, motivated reasons to be more optimistic about this, but I, I go very back and forth on what I think if there is a content bubble that ends up meaning. Because what you have now, I mean, five years ago, when I got to the Washington Post, they were in their fourth round of layoffs. And every day there would be like a bell and everybody would gather and somebody would eat cake because they were, they were leaving the institution. And I, I rode up in the elevator one day with one of the managing editors, and I said, just in this sort of trying to make conversation awkwardly as I normally would in an elevator, it's incredible how much cake you go through here. And he said to me, and this was true, and I checked it later, that he said, yeah, we actually had to cut the cake budget recently. <laughs> and I thought, well, fuck, I've really gotten into media at the wrong time. I saw all the talk of the content bubble when there were, you know, reports that BuzzFeed had missed its revenue targets or was going to miss its revenue targets. But BuzzFeed being profitable, but not maybe as profitable as they had hoped to be, seems like a very different situation and frankly, a much better one than the one that was really not that long ago where nobody was making any money, that all you saw was huge losses everywhere. Yes. This depends upon the fusion of advertising and journalism as a business model. Mm -hmm. And my contention is that that won't work, that, that essentially it will either destroy the brand of the journalism, in which case advertisers won't be interested in, in piggybacking on it, or the truth is that young writers will earn much more money writing corporate propaganda under the guise of writing articles, and the journalism stuff will, will peter out. I mean, it just isn't cost-effective. And secondly, I think... 
I just think there's too much stuff for people to try and read. I mean, it, it, and they're chasing, and the ad dollars are so minuscule mm-hmm. that that you're going to get a diminishing returns pretty quickly. I haven't dealt with this in terms of creating a business model for quite a while, but I just don't. I really, I really think a crash is coming. Obviously, I don't. <laughs> I just think there's a limit. I think that the branding is going to become really hard. Do, and uh, Do you think that looks like a... Because I could see two ways that can look, right? If you, if you imagine a crash is coming, one is a crash, right? What I think people imagine when they hear that, which is that everybody goes down. Well, here's and what, the other is a consolidation, right? That right. the tide goes out and a lot of things that didn't have a business model, that didn't have a brand, end up in a lot of trouble. Yep. I think I need to add something to this picture, which is that insofar as it will work, it will work at the expense of text, that writing will become a far tinier portion of web traffic than video. And, and that, that because video is... Well, that's only, happening. Yeah, that's happening in a huge... So but basically, hasn't that always been... I mean, this is something I think is weird, and, and I apologize for interrupting you. But 20 years ago, when I read magazines. It wasn't unclear to anybody in the magazine world that more people enjoyed television. Yeah, It's just always been the case. Not always, because we've only had these things for so long, but it's been true for a long time that more people like visual entertainment than text entertainment. What just is different now is that the same institutions are doing both things. Right. But that seems actually, in some ways, like good news for them. Yes, except that the video is the only thing that pays any money. That's That's the issue. And when everything becomes television... The role of, of text and print. Now, what, what you could say is this, that the last 10 years or 15 years when the Internet was evolving and text really took control, text and writing suddenly had a huge increase mm-hmm. in its reach. And my view is the video is going to crowd that out, that writing is going to return back to a much more niche situation. Oh, that's interesting. And, and so we will return, actually, to where we were before without the distortion of the web creating such an excitement about writing as, as the web becomes basically TV. And I think that the basic revenue model for what's left of writing will be subscription-based because I just don't think advertising is going to work the way it used to because there's so many other places for people to advertise and because writing writing at any serious level immediately drastically reduces the likelihood of large amounts of readership. I mean, that, this is simply the case. I mean, but this, you, you always did very well for readership. We did great. And not only that, we did, but, but we would not have survived if we hadn't had 30,000 people paying us around 40 bucks a year, which was, um, you know, again, I look around, I don't see any place actually with that kind of rock-solid subscriber base online, uh, a pure, as a purely online mm-hmm. situation. I mean, I do have, you know, I have no regrets about like ending that experiment because it was either ending that or ending me. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of, I kind of had to just take precautions, but I, I'm still a big believer that serious writing is going to require serious commitment from readers to supporting it. And so I actually, you know, I, I think that, and I, I even think that print magazines if they reimagined themselves and really appealed to a particular demographic, could possibly endure. Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. 
Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Let me ask you a, a hypothetical about the dish, the way the revenue experiment worked and the way it ended. Do you think that if you had decided to take capital, build something bigger, build something that had more writers, a managing editor, more editors rather, and not as much of it had to rest on your shoulders and on your voice. And I think that probably would have meant doing things like conferences, doing things like advertising, where you can just get more scale in your revenue more quickly. Do you think you would have, in that world, been able to keep it going? I mean, do you think that you got caught in a place where the business model you chose worked, but it wasn't sustainable on a human level. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. And the point was that it was a blog that became as big and as wide and as broad as a blog could possibly get. Mm -hmm. But if we were to change the dish from me writing every day to something like Vox or something, then it, it would have been a different thing. And to be honest... At some level, I didn't want to edit a magazine anymore. Right. Because you had done that. I'd done it. I public. didn't want to do it again. I, and I found myself increasingly preoccupied with things like business questions. And, and at some level, you ask yourself a gut check. Who, who are you? What do you want to do with your life? And the answer for me was I, I, I'm a writer. I did this because it was an amazing new venue for writing and an amazing new experience and a readership that was incredibly rewarding. But I had several opportunities over the years to turn the dish into something other than the dish. And 
there was something, a particular relationship between me and the readership that I thought was integral to the the DNA of the entire thing. So, and, and so maybe it was my egomania or maybe it was just my sense that it might not work without me. <laughs> no, I think there's honestly a lot of courage in that. I think it is very hard to say no to those opportunities. But I, I, I'd love to hear something else on this because obviously I have gone in a different direction with that and have created things first at Wonkblog and, and now hopefully at Vox that are they're much less infused by me but in some ways are my sensibility in a much bigger way. And I agree with you that what that ends up meaning, and in ways that I struggle with a lot day to day, is spending a lot more time on questions of business, on questions of personnel, on questions of hiring, on questions of you know just how the whole thing works, what are we going to do next? So you really do lose a lot of yourself as a writer, and I feel that constantly, and it's really painful. On the other hand, Something that I always thought you were really good at, and I think you see it even in what the people who are around you have gone and done now, is you were actually able to transfer your sensibility to other people, that you could go away for August and the tone of the dish was similar. It wasn't the same. I mean, it, it was missing you, but you really could have imagined a site that I think had your sensibility. And so is a question really that that site couldn't have had a business model, couldn't have worked? Or is it just that ultimately it wasn't what you wanted to do? We'll never know the answer to that. <laughs> but it really wasn't what I wanted to do. I mean, I think at some level it came down to that gut feeling. Mm -hmm. And I felt that we had done something really amazing and that I didn't want to see it turned into something else. And my particular blend of strange, idiosyncratic blend of opinions and views and ideas I think would have been quite hard in this particular culture to sustain. In other words, I think I also felt that the, the right and the left in different ways had made the sensibility of the dish extremely hard to sustain without me at the center of it. Yes, I, I was able to attract and retain some amazing talent and, and they're still incredibly talented doing different things in different ways. Yeah, and I think at some level, the idea of being a CEO or a manager of like a, a media organization and then also going into getting on debt and all the rest, I just, when I looked at that, I just, I just not, I'm just not personally, that's not what I want, how I mm -hmm. want to live my life. I, I did not want the responsibilities of managing a, a big organization. And I was using the blog to explore my view of the world and to explore writing and ideas and conversation. And ultimately, when I couldn't do that any longer, I decided to, to just stop. And I thought the integrity of the thing, which we'd kept from the beginning for 15 years, was just, I don't know, I was just happy with it. I don't think everything has to last forever. Mm -hmm. I'm not interest, that interested in money. I'm definitely downwardly mobile, have, having quit it, and last year earned nothing at all. So... I think it came down to that gut thing. Do I want to be a businessman? Do I want to be a manager? Do I want to be a CEO? Do I have the time and ability to find and manage the people who could do that? And the answer is, that's not, you're better at that than I am. And, and well, I we'll, think, we'll find out. We'll Maybe find, it's all a disaster. Well, <laughs> and I also believed, uh, seriously, I just thought the other model of this big scaled model based upon sponsored content was something I couldn't ethically do. I just couldn't do it. I just could not run an organization in which advertising was disguised as journalism and journalism was hard to distinguish from the advertising. And that was the opposite. That was the alternative sort of scale up right. stuff. And I, I just, you know, look, I, again, 
there were several points in the last maybe seven years in which people had come to me and suggested that they turn this into something like, you know, the Huffington Post or Vox. And, and I just consistently said, no, I know what this was. From the inside, you see, as a, I, especially the relationship with the readership. Yeah. And you, you, one thing that was very special about The Dish was that, that relationship was a very personal, intimate thing. Yeah. And I imagine that made changing things much actually harder. Yeah. Because I kind of made a pact with the readership that I was going to do my best every day to tell the truth about the world as I saw it and be open to conversation and have that. And it really was a ranging, constantly changing conversation between these this amazing readership, which was like a, something that you would just like any writer would be thrilled to have, and me. And so that was the experience of the dish. And you could... If we were to change it, it would have been a different thing. We'd have been starting a whole new project. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't want to start a whole new project. I just didn't. And I also thought maybe, you know, in a few years' time when this whole thing is shaken out and we have a better idea of what's working and what isn't working, you could think of it again. But I think the other thing was that that intimate personal relationship with the readership, with someone of my kind of temperament, was just ultimately incredibly draining just the emotions of it. I mean, I think that I think I was emotionally completely exhausted and depleted. So I'm really curious about a part of this from your side, which is you absorbed a tremendous amount of conflict <gasps> as a head of the dish, right? Yes. You Something that you really did was you would take stances for an extended period of time that were, to say the least, unpopular. Yeah. Um, and, and even when they were in a pipe, they're often just controversial. And there's something that I feel, and I am probably a less, I am definitely a less provocative writer and myself do a lot less writing nowadays than, than you did. And I have less of a direct relationship with, with my audience. And something that from afar, I was always impressed by that with you, that I never felt I have the stomach for that. I find the conflict of, of my writing, the, the times when I become a, a factor in it and people are angry and they're upset or even they're happy and they're just arguing about it, really emotionally difficult. And I mean, I can deal with it, but I sort of always just assumed from the outside that you just didn't have that. No, of I'm a human being. Because and... I know some writers who don't actually. Right. I have a thick skin at this mm -hmm. point. I mean, nothing can really get in there anymore. But that's because of the emotional scarring. And, and it, you know, it goes back a long way to to just being a conservative running a liberal magazine. <laughs> My days of the New Republic were intensely controversial and constantly putting me through the ringer. And then my position position on marriage and the military were also intensely controversial in my own community among gay people. So I was a pariah also and targeted for that in many ways. And because we were all struggling to get through a, a plague, the emotions were particularly intense. And that struggle with the right too, subsequently, and then the breaking with the right <laughs> in the early part of this millennium, because I just thought it was just going completely crazy. Um, well, you, you, you should prove wrong about that. Yeah, I know. I was <laughs> Look how well things have stabilized out. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. You know, and I'm a Catholic in a largely secular society. You know, I'm, I'm, the conflicts were constant and kind of grueling and personalized. Somehow I was a personal people. There's some people that just, I, I, they really hate me personally. And when you've opened yourself up the way you have to have that come back at you. So, 
Emotionally, I, to be honest with you, yeah, I think I'm still dealing with it. No one believes me, but I'm an introvert and I am happiest alone with a book mm -hmm. uh, or with my dogs. Or So I think I also realized just psychically that if I didn't stop this, I needed, I needed to regain myself. That's why I ended up alone in a forest, you know, with myself. You know, I just needed to be alone. And to be honest, this last week or so, going back into the fray, has been really, I mean, I haven't been able to sleep very well. It, 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 I have extreme conflict about it. TV particularly is awful. Uh, That's interesting. Does, does TV affect you more than the other kinds of feedback? Because I always found it affected me less. Somehow it felt much less personal. For me, the, the impact was that it would have was, was that I would be recognized and therefore the distance that a writer has from his ideas and carving out a personal space to live as opposed to where you write began to disappear. And so even walking down the street, I was in, in that conflict zone. And that was just so debilitating mm. after a while. And you have to kind of experience to feel it. And I, I just also, you know, I think, I think fame in that sense, visual fame, the inability to go places, you know, like I'm old friends with Addison Cooper, for example, and, I, and what we would do 20 years ago is impossible now because he's in a, you know, in a complete, I mean, you just can't go anywhere with the poor guy. He's just completely besieged. People own him. Everyone demands mm -hmm. a cell phone picture of him wherever he is in public. And so you, you just, I just never wanted to live like that. Never. And I craved privacy and, you know, a space. That's, and that's what I've tried to recover. And it's, it's, I've made all these choices. I'm taking full responsibility for it. And I've gone on, I don't have to go on television, although you kind of do when you write these pieces now. Yeah, a little, the a little bit. They just like, if you don't, you're really being, you're really not helping. Yeah. Um, but the point of writing a piece like this Trump piece is that you, you I can't, make that argument on TV. There's no way I can even begin to make an argument like that or at least create a narrative that tries to inform this issue. I can't do it in three minutes. There's no bloody way I can do it in three mm -hmm. minutes. So to be able to do that and then disappear. So I'll, and, and the other thing that saved me was going to Provincetown every summer and just hiding in my cottage and going to the beach and just being with friends who I've known for 30 years, fellow survivors of the plague, people who remember a lot of the people we lost. And I think that's uh, that was another issue. I mean, during all of this, I was also going through in, in the 90s, certainly it's an incredibly tough emotional time with losing so many people and being frightened of, of dying myself. And then the emotional arc of our marriage fight, you know, this, for me, it was like, a, you know, from the 80s on, it was like, this was the issue I really wanted to promote and and boy that was that was emotionally scarring too i mean the things that would be said and done and, and the constant conflict about it first with the left then with the right and when the marriage decision came down we actually got it in 50 states i just felt this incredible sense of relief that this struggle which i was constantly looking at anything that came up that was gonna any argument that came up i needed to counter mm -hmm. i mean evan and i for you know a good evan wilson we deputized each other to just be out there and just campaign constantly about this in the early days. And so I think there's a kind of exhaustion from that, too. I mean, for, for audience who doesn't, maybe doesn't know the history of this, you were really the first writer to 
push this in a serious way. And, and I've, I've, I would actually love to ask you a bit about that. What was the background to the first piece you wrote on this? What was uh, the story of that piece? It's funny. It was an editorial meeting at the New Republic. And there was talk about the domestic partnership situation in New York. And those are the good old days in a magazine and be asking, what should we write? What, what should we collectively write about this? What's our position? Everyone knew I was gay. So at some point in the conversation. And you're not the editor yet. Oh, no, no. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm I think, assistant associate editor. No, I wasn't on staff at all at that point. I had been, but then I was back at Harvard working on my dissertation. And I had said at the meeting, well, why don't we just let people get married? I mean, isn't that the obvious answer to this? I, I really don't like this whole domestic. It sounds like for some reason I'm not able to do what my brothers and sisters are able to do. And so Mike said, that's a good argument. And <laughs> Michael Kinsley. Mike Kinsley, yeah. And, and I said, you know, and also that's the conservative position. Surely it should be the conservative position. We should support traditional marriage and integrate this minority into a traditional institution. And Mike said, yeah, that'll piss him off. <laughs> uh, I'm paraphrasing from memory, but that was sure. the basic gist. So Mike said, write that, write that. And I was like, I don't, I was out to everybody I knew, but I wasn't, a publicly gay person at that point. I was, you know, I was young. And he kept nagging me. So eventually I was just like, all right, I'll bash this out. I did it. And he bloody well put it on the cover. And that was it. So at that point, I was not even out to my parents at that point, actually. Oh, wow. And at that, in that day and age, in 1989, if you wrote about gay subjects, you had to be gay. No one wrote about them because they didn't want to appear to be gay. You go back and you see any stories about gay people hmm. in the 80s or not, 80s were all written by women <laughs> um, or gay men. Like no straight man would touch this with a barge pole, this subject. So that's what, how it happened. And Evan Wolfson was, had written this dissertation on the same question, got in touch with me. And we, we just, it, you know, it didn't go very far for a while. It was regarded as a interesting, classic New Republic, contrarian, little silly, rhetorical, mm -hmm. like stick it to the right. That was how most people saw it. But then when I went out and just thought about it some more and, and talked about it some more, I realized, God, no, no, this, I, I, I'm absolutely stumbled. I've stumbled onto something important. And, and the book that really affected me was John Boswell's book, Christianity, Homosexuality and Social Tolerance, which if anybody's, you know, interested, they should, it's an amazing book. Because it was the first book that really broke the idea that gay people have really existed forever and have in the past constructed forms of relationships that were stable and enduring and respected and acknowledged. So that was exciting to find that was going on in the 8th century. And so you had the sense of we're not doing something crazy new. We're actually and, – and to be honest with you, then it became fused with me with the AIDS epidemic because – I saw stuff that I just, people who had taken care of their spouse for, for years only to be thrown out of their apartments, and denied access to funerals. I mean, it, gay people today do, could not believe what these people went through because we didn't have basic protections. And so, and there was also a sense towards the end of it when my best friend died and, and I just felt... I have, to, I have to write something. And I also felt I was going to die. So I felt like I had to write something soon about marriage equality. And that's, that's where Virtually Normal came out of because I thought that was it. I thought, I thought that was the only book I was ever going to write. 
What I might year, as well leave what it year did that come in? Come out. That came out in '95. So that is the peak of the epidemic. Yeah, and in fact, my friend died. My, the week, the my week uncle in, died in '94. Right, and it wasn't actually until a couple of years ago when I began really reading about the plague that I understood that if it had been two years later, it could have been totally different. Yeah. And also what people don't realize is that they think of it as the worst of it was in the 80s. No, actually, more people died in 95 than any other year. So it just got worse and worse. And we're talking about, so literally the week, the launch of Virtue Normal, the second day of the book tour, I was going from San Francisco to Seattle. My best friend, who I'd just been with, suddenly took a turn for the worst, and I had to cancel the book tour and go back and watch him die. So it was it was a real collision, really, of, of reality. Um, what was the response to Virtually Normal like? You know, I, I really can't complain. Most people kind of were polite about it. And, and uh, I got an amazing review in National Review. Really? <laughs> yeah. By um, who? By um, basically a political philo- – a, a, a professor, a mm-hmm. political philosopher who actually wrote a National Review – Quote, unquote, I'm not doing this to brag, but it said, Andrew Sullivan's done for homosexuality what John Stuart Mill did for liberty, which is pretty awesome. That is a solid. That's a solid. That that can go on the back cover. It did. (laughs) Trust me, it did. Um, So that was National Review. And my old professor, Harvey C. Mansfield, wrote a respectful review in the Wall Street Journal. It was savaged by the gay the gay press. Oh, so that's interesting. So the, the, the negative reviews were not coming from the conservative publications. They were coming from the gay press. Yeah. Who were just brutal about it. Was that uh, harder on you? Yeah. I mean, it was, the whole thing was incredibly grueling because, first of all, I'm, I'm sitting there, a gay man in the middle of this thing with this virus in me and other people dying, and suddenly you're suddenly all these people whom you really care about and want, and want to do something with are just suddenly screaming at you. I mean, there was a time when I couldn't go to bars because ACT UP in D.C. Would, would scream collaborator at me until I was forced to leave. I had glasses thrown at me. It was a scary time. And what uh, was the critique of your book from the gay community? I mean, I've read a bit about this, but I... I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Republican Catholic who is propagating a heterosexist patriarchal institution and attacking queer culture. So I mean, that you were trying to assimilate, basically. Basically, I'm an Uncle Tom. Mm-hmm. And we have fought to destroy marriage and certainly to never go in the military. And that part of the gay rights movement, which is an absolutely integral part of it, I mean, certainly since 1969, although not much before that, to be honest, Obviously, found all of this kind of really threatening. And also, I think, to some extent, the fact that I had, by pure accident, landed in my 20s as editor of this major magazine meant that I had, I were, and there were, it's hard to remember now, but there were very few openly gay people in, you know, 89, 90, 90. I mean, certainly not in the media. Right. And so suddenly I was gay spokesperson and I was saying things that they really didn't agree with. So they had to take me down. And Virtue Normal was picketed. Going to a, a reading in Chicago, I remember having to go through a picket of lesbian Avengers with my, my face on a placards with crosshairs over it. I mean, it was just like, it was really crazy stuff. But again, the emotions of the time were so intense that I understand it, but it was no, didn't make it any less 
just brutalizing to go through. This question may sound weirdly simple, but you're in a period here where you have a lot of friends dying. You yourself are HIV positive at this point. Releasing a book is stressful on its own, but you're being picketed at bars. How do you structure your life to not collapse under that? I think at that point, all of us in that epidemic were so focused on just getting through. So there was a kind of focus and energy about that. I also was just convinced that I was right about this. And lastly, you know, I, I have a, an amazingly good set of friends and I have my faith, which is where I, the way I described it was I had to find a place where the plague couldn't get me. And when you're put in those incredibly stressful, almost combat situations, you either find that psychological place where you can withstand it or you go under. I think one of the most amazing things about that period was how many people in this incredible trauma kept their shit together, as it were. How did that period not shake your faith? Uh, it did the opposite, to Why? be honest with you. Because it forced one to confront death, you know, in, a, in an extremely tangible way. And any time you confront death in that way, you confront the big existential questions. And so it is a, it's a strong testing time for anybody's faith. There was a moment, I wrote about this in my book, Love Undetectable, on my 30th birthday, when... I should have been celebrating. I had to be. I had to keep all this secret too, because I was a public figure. And if I it got out that I was HIV positive, it would have been like he's dying, and I, it would have been impossible. Mm -hmm. And Mickey Cows would probably never have come into the office. <laughs> <laughs> so that's very in joke. As I said, the, there was a kind of epiphany really on my thirtieth birthday, where I was in Provincetown actually, and I was going by myself to the beach, and uh, halfway there. I, I literally fell to my knees. I, I just, I remember thinking, well, at that point, my mother had also just been taken back into a mental institution. So that had just happened too. And Pat, my friend, was, had gotten a, a cryptosporidium, which was going to starve him to death, which I also just found out. And I was, I looked at my T-cell count and, you know, <laughs> it was scary. And it just occurred to me, you know, not that God did not exist, which has never, never occurred to me, to be honest, but that God was evil because these people didn't deserve this. I mean, my mom didn't deserve the incredible suffering that was visited upon her and still is. I, and these are good people who were already marginalized and struggling with all sorts of issues of self-esteem and, and had no place in society and were then the most vulnerable were then struck down. This is not going to satisfy you, I'm afraid, but that I, I just felt completely bleak at that moment, uh, about 15 minutes, as I remember. And then it lifted, a bit like the way it lifted in the forest with my mother, just lifted. And I felt something greater than me pick me up, take me to the beach and tell me that it'll all be okay and that even if it's not okay, it'll be okay. And that's God. In some ways, you face a crucible like that and you either come out 
And again, it's not really a question of reasoning through it. Um, There are plenty of reasons. The theodicy argument, I've never fully really understood why people are stuck on it. It seems to be quite obvious that we live in a physical material world and there are all sorts of processes and we just have a much highly developed brain that experiences suffering in a much more complex way. And that's the way the universe is. But the universe is also an unbelievably miraculous place and and you know every day is staggeringly beautiful in in so many different ways um but this is the way it is we will die we will die you will die i will die so i'm i'm planning to stop eating sugar <laughs> you know what happened was i realized life is not i the, the one metaphor that helped me was like life is not like a longevity race mm-hmm. it really isn't the person who gets to 110 doesn't win no and my best friend died at 31 so I could not believe that his life was worth less than mine. And so I realized it's, life is more like going to college. You're there for a set period of time. It might be three to four years. The key thing is what you do while you're there. And instead of trying to live forever, why not just try to live now, which is a different kind of forever? My mentor, Michael Oakeshott, once said to me um, that he was – interested in the concept of salvation, which has nothing whatsoever to do with the future. And that's what you learn in those situations. You live in the present, you live open to God's grace, and you try and do what God wants you to do as far as you can glean it. And that's enough. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. When you talk about living in the present, sometimes I think people take that and and bring it to the hypothetical if this was your last day. And it sounds to me that isn't what you're saying. No, it isn't. Um, I don't want to sound like some mindfulness guru or either some sort of Christian mystic, but the truth is that, that uh, living fully in the knowledge that one will die is the only way to live. You know, Montaigne said, to philosophize is to learn how to die. Joseph Goldstein, who's the chief yogi at the Meditation Insight Meditation Society, said something that I really thought was fascinating. He was telling a story about another yogi who was asked, can you sum up Buddhism in, in one phrase, since it's so, all so bloody simple? <laughs> Surely you can streamline it to, to one particular phrase. One tweet. One tweet. One Buddhism. tweet for all of Buddhism. And he said, well, I can't do it in one, but I can do it in three. And so he said, well, what are the three things? And he said, the first thing is um, everything changes. The second thing is anything can happen anytime. And the third is I am not exempt. And I think when you're like 29 and suddenly you, you're literally sitting in a doctor's office and you've led this 
you think your whole life is ahead of you and suddenly you're looking at the carpet and it's blurring and you're just trying to absorb this information. Anything can happen. And the acknowledgement that, that there is no... There is no constraining or even accelerating the change that is happening in you and around you. You just have to come to terms with it, peace with it. And I think once you come to peace with those three things, which are very close to a lot of what Christianity is talking about too, you're living. That's, that's what it is to live every day. And we can't handle that. You know, to quote T.S. Eliot, I'm getting very literary on you now, but humankind cannot bear very much reality. So we flee it. And we rightfully flee it because it's kind of terrifying. Mm-hmm. Unless there is a loving God, from my point of view. I just want to reiterate that talking about this stuff is, is a little weird, and I don't want anybody to possibly misconstrue that I'm proselytizing or anything like right. that. I'm seriously not. Pe- uh, people, will, people will listen to this generously. <laughs> I, so. I believe that. There's, uh, this is something that I think is actually a little bit different about podcasts from the blogosphere, and they, I think people listen to this stuff a little bit more generously. Yeah. I just, I just, I, I, for example, I, I truly believe that the position of a principled atheist is, a, is an absolutely honorable and principled position to take. And I, I, we all face the existential darkness alone. And whatever you make of it is what you make of it. I, I, and I think I agree with the Pope that proselytism is solemn nonsense. It's a pretty amazing thing for a Pope to say yeah. and a sign that he understands Christianity better than his predecessor. That is, that is it. And I, I, but it's still there and I still go to mass and I'm writing this book about, I'm actually writing this partly memoir. It's partly a memoir about how a modern person can remain a Christian, which is a challenge, a, a unique challenge that Christianity in general has not been living up to <laughs> in large parts. But I think it's possible, not only possible, but kind of vital. And that's the project I'm really trying to focus on right now. The book, I, I'm calling it Keeping Faith. Because I also believe, looking around us, you know, like where we are in this culture, the dissatisfaction, the frustration, the anxiety that's coursing through everybody right now, we see coming through our political process at some level, even though I absolutely believe in politics as a necessary evil to handle these things and to, to govern. And they're not, it's not the answer. Right. It won't make you happy, politics. It won't. It's not designed to do that. And those for whom politics gives the ultimate meaning, I think, are just like lost on either side. Life comes first, I think. You said something I thought was sort of beautiful a moment ago, that we all face the existential darkness alone. And you were saying that you don't question the principled atheist. And what I was thinking about when you said that was that a lot of this is not an argument, but a set of intuitions people have. And I have never been able to feel what you feel, where you said that you have never really considered the idea. You've never felt the idea that, that there isn't a God, that ha- that has not felt like a, a possible reality to you. Whereas my experience of these questions is exactly the opposite, that no matter how hard I search around these things. And when I was young, I went to an Orthodox Jewish school for, for a while. When I was in college, I did a lot more reading into religious traditions and spirituality. And the leap for me that I was never able to take was that leap of, of any intuitive feeling. Right. This stuff can make sense to me. Yeah. Why do you think you have that? I'm not questioning it. I'm, I'm more asking, what do you think gives that to you? 
I think it comes very early, honestly. I mean, I, I go back to really being a child. I mean, and the truth is I was brought up a Catholic, you know, so I've taken to Mass every week. But I also grew up in the edge of a small town in rural England. So it never occurred to me as a little boy who was often running around the forest with my camp and my little streams that I loved or my tracks and paths through the forests. And I, I think about it this time of year, because this time of year, when the new green is coming in into England, the bluebells bloom below and in the Sussex woodlands that I grew up in. And for about a week, there's this unbelievably vibrant blue sea beneath the beginning of the leaves. Once, once the leaves grow, the light makes it impossible for the bluebells, but they mm -hmm. have this little... It just never occurred to me as I was sitting around and looking at all that, that there wasn't a God. And when I say that, let me, let me put it a different way. Godness. Mm -hmm. It never occurred to me that there is no meaning to all of this. But, but as you've gotten older, you have questioned and ended up painfully breaking from so many groups and beliefs that you had, right? I mean, you, there, there are people I could imagine hearing that from and saying, yeah, I mean, this is a person who the loyalties they had at eight are the loyalties are going to have at 80. But that very much isn't how you've lived. And yet this, this part has stayed constant. Well, I, I'm not sure I would agree entirely with that. I think actually that my politics have shifted a little bit, but I don't, I don't think they're utterly different than what I, I mean, I think I'm not a different human being. What's happened is that institutions and groupings that have coalesced around those things mm -hmm. have, in my mind, completely gone astray. So the big question is, why did you not leave during the sex abuse crisis? Or why were there moments in which you did? I mean, I'll give, I'll give you one moment during the when the quilt came to Washington. And I went down to see it. And it happened to be on a Sunday. And I come back to St. Matthew's to go to mass at 530. And the sermon is about the 10 lepers who were cured. And the one who comes back to thank him is the Samaritan or is, 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 is doubly stigmatized. So I'm waiting for the sermon about this. It's very meaningful suddenly in that Sunday. And the priest says, you know, of course, no one here experiences something like leprosy anymore. So we should probably think of it in terms of cancer. And that was a moment where I was just like, please, Lord, don't, 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 don't. And I started shaking with anger at the thought that they could be so callous and blind to, to what was happening only blocks away mm -hmm. and to a congregation that was probably a third gay men and someone serving on the altar I knew personally who was HIV positive. Oh, wow. <laughs> and at the end of it, I went up to the priest and I said, have you heard about AIDS, Father? It's in the newspapers. And he said, well, I didn't think it would affect anybody here. So I didn't go back for three to four months. And then after that, I recovered. But then when the sex abuse crisis hit, which was the most for those of us, you know, I mean, it was, it was horrifying, still is horrifying. And I couldn't go into church then for a long time, for about a year, because I felt so much anger. And then after a year... I go to St. Matthew's, so I would come in and sit in the St. Francis Chapel, which is off the main church, mm -hmm. listen to the mass being said and leave. And so I kind of ease myself back into it. Because look, the, 
institutions are necessary evils. They're the way one generation transmits something to the next generation. And I owe this institution my faith. It is and was in many ways wicked, certainly unbelievably wicked in this particular case. But I'm not loyal to the institution. I'm loyal to the faith. And that's why many of us Catholics have persisted. So it's not as if there haven't been moments. But the point is, as I simply can't not believe. I feel like even more, if I could not be a Catholic, I would love it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it would be fantastic. His other great quote was when asked, how can you be a Catholic and be such an asshole? And he was like, you have no idea how much bigger an asshole I'd be if I weren't a Catholic. Who said that? <laughs> Evelyn War. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm paraphrasing. He didn't say asshole, but it's, it was of, of, the, of the equivalent. Because I actually, and here I'm going to sound a little preachy, but I, I just believe the words of Jesus and I believe in him and I feel him in my life. And it's, it's just there, always has been. It's where I go when I really need to go somewhere to rescue myself. I mean, Hitch was, you know, one of my best friends and not best friends, but he was a very good friend. And, and we, he constantly teased me about all this stuff all the time. But I never had any interest in arguing with him about it. Partly because, of, I mean, I, when he, he was so excited when he found out that I was not going to mass anymore. And would greet me every time. Have you left Mother Church yet? You know, all the... <laughs> And then when his book came out, you know, he was so excited. He just, every time I bumped into him, have you read it, blah, blah, blah. I was like, uh, you know, yeah, the thing about blogging, it was hard to sit down and read a whole book, right. but I did. And then he was so excited. And, I, and he said, well, what do you think? I said, I agreed with almost everything in it. It's like, this is a very small barrel and a very large number of fish, you know. that you, Right. <laughs> the making fun of organized religion is huge fun, but it doesn't actually answer the question, which is, why are we here? And Hitch, Hitch was a master of the distraction from that question. Although he faced his own mortality. Um, well, you know, I didn't, I, unfortunately, I lost in the last few months, it was, just, it was, he was just with family and very close friends and I didn't really know, but um, I'm sure we'll see each other at some point in some way, in some fashion that we can understand again. But I never wanted to argue points with him because it just seemed pointless. That's why it's hard to argue about religion. You can ex try and explain it to other people. And, but I do think, nonetheless, that religion is forever. I think the idea that we're going to be post-religious is, is absurd. It, I think there's a very strong argument that it's evolutionarily selected in ways that none of us can avoid. And whether you think you don't believe anything, you'd be amazed how many thorough atheists start like swearing on superstitious things when a plane gets bumpy. You know, uh, you know the whole atheist well, in no foxholes. No foxhole, right? Yeah. I, or just you think of all the superstitions. There's a great new book out actually. It's not. In the U.S. yet, it's called uh, God is Watching You, which is an essential attempt to argue about the evolutionary psychology of religious faith and how it evolved on the savannas over, over millennia. Um, well, this is something Sam Harris is, I think, like trying to create uh, a structure around. I'm, I'm yeah. for some reason blanking on the name of his book, but it's one of his more recent ones. It's called Waking Up. Waking Up, where he's trying to think about how do you create a spirituality and set of, I think, it's fair to say rituals and traditions consistent with an atheist outlook, right? He's trying to fill that same space. Yeah, that's why, that's why I feel a great kinship with Sam. This book is an attempt to do that, but from the other 
perspective mm-hmm. because I do think certain things in Christianity have to be completely junked as disproven. Right. And so I'm an enlightened, I mean, I hope I'm an enlightenment Christian. And that is the challenge right now. And Christianity has, I mean, I think Francis is definitely understanding that challenge. But so far, reactionaryism and, or the, Bene, the Benedict option, as, as Rod Dreher, whom I love, but he's a complete hysteric about all this stuff, supports, or even Ross, you know, Ross Douthat, mm-hmm. um, it can and must be possible to be both, to believe in reason and faith in slightly different ways. But I certainly don't think that Christians should be asserting things that empirically have been disproven. And I think the more we do, the less credibility our faith has. Let me guide us back into the more gritty world of politics yeah. here for a couple yeah. minutes. Yeah. 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 You yeah. wrote in 2007, I think it was, maybe it was 06 actually, really tremendous piece called Goodbye to All That, which I think was the most at that moment, not just influential endorsement of Obama, but definition of our articulation of what I think people felt he stood for and could do in American politics. And a lot of that essay, which was influential with me, was about moving us past certain kind of polarized debates. And I think it's fair to say that didn't happen. And I'm curious how you think about either him or, or the underlying theories of, of that essay now. Like, What has the Obama administration in its political dimension taught you about what is and isn't possible in American politics? I would say that Obama tried to do what he really wanted to do. I also believe that Obama, deep down, wants to be that kind of president Mm -hmm. and would have loved it. But I underestimated and was, to be honest, quite shocked. I thought that a a Republican Party that had presided over such a catastrophe, both foreign policy and domestically, would be chastened enough to understand that this guy is, is worth working with. And then we could rebuild. But they didn't. And the emotional power of these cultural forces that we've, we've been living with now since the 60s proved, especially with, I think, an African-American president, and especially in the wake of this terrible financial crisis and economic slump, just became just impossible. But that's a question of whether, and we're going to find out. You see, But I do think that what he's done, to be honest, has been exactly what he said he'd do. Mm-hmm. It, it is actually a really centrist view. I, I think that people completely forget how much Obamacare bent over backwards to try and help get right conservative buy-in, how the stimulus also had a huge amount of attempt to get conservative buy-in, how, in fact, I think his foreign policy is really a kind of classic realist Republican position. I think he's a Rockefeller Republican, basically, mm-hmm. and that's why I've always liked him. And I think his, his attempt to reorient the United States so that we're not massively leveraged in parts of the world to which there is no solution and only constant cost is another small c conservative move that I believe in. The question is, is America capable of of seeing this as a positive advance, at least more than 50% of America? And the acting out since 08, really, I mean, first the Tea Party and then this constant wave of anger and rage and frustration, we're now reaching its final iteration, I think. I mean, although one should always be aware of that, given how fucking <laughs> crazy these people are. But here's my hope about this election, even though I'm mainly full of fear rather than hope at this point. But my hope is it might be the moment Obama's 
long game really finally works. In other words, the, the, you can't deal with these people. You can pursue a policy in which they could get buy-in. So let's say the symbol of this is Merrick Garland, in which you have a, a Democratic president putting forward a centrist, respectable human being, just as he put forward a completely non really shouldn't be controversial stimulus package and a completely centrist healthcare reform, both addressing tangible problems that people didn't have alternatives to. So the question is whether they're going to go completely crazy and, and, and Trump is the, the, the sort of reductio ad absurdum of their hatred of all this. And he might then corral a majority to thump them in this election in such a way that this is what Obama has been talking about. It would be them, the inflection point at which they start to behave like a, a responsible governing party. So he's had this view, and he spoke about it in the 2012 election, that he thought that if he won the 2012 election, he said the fever might break, yeah. right? And that line became very, very famous. And I think there is a implicit model there that is actually based on the Democratic Party and Clinton, that they lose a series three presidential elections in, in a row and you have the emergence of institutions like the DLC and, and other things that end up moderating the party. And, and people argue about whether or not that history is the correct one to tell, but it's certainly one that I think you can make a good argument for. And yet, I think that if you watch the Republican Party's reactions to losing in recent years, you don't see any of that happening. So I, I think some people who are, are optimistic in that way, the, the view is that, well, if they lose with Donald Trump by 10 points or eight points or six points, something big, that at least that approach will be discredited. But I don't think you're seeing any of the corollaries, the emergence of institutions that are meant to moderate, the emergence of politicians who seem to have a constituency who are coming from a different wing of the party. And I do wonder how much you just drive people more nuts with rage because I think the way that will end up looking is that if Hillary Clinton wins by whatever it is, eight points, you will see, as you did in the beginning of the Obama administration, very aggressive policy change. And that ends up scaring the shit out of people. And so I, I wonder if you're just if we're just in for this cycle of angry reactions on the part of the Republican Party that make it a smaller, more marginal, more marginal, more unelectable national party, followed by Democrats taking advantage of that weakness, followed by backlash that leads to some amount of traction in the midterms, followed by another day. You know, I mean, yeah. you, you can see a cycle here that's pretty long term, difficult to break out of. Yep. I'm not disagreeing with that, except at some point when you can't get power as a political party, when you have no real access to governance. And you need the White House or you, you, you need one of those institutions more than you can get. You know, you have to think there might be a debate about that. And I don't think we'll know until this election's over. I mean, you, you present a sobering and depressing possibility. But at some point, rage is, rage is not that sustainable permanently, especially if I think a Clinton victory. I mean, she, they, they hate her so much. And for a woman to succeed a two-term black president and it cement his legacy, and I think her real role will be to be the George H.W. Bush to his Reagan, you know, that did have an effect, as you say, on the Democratic Party. It might and should have an effect. It depends. The culture also matters too, I think. I mean, it depends how the culture shifts and the economy shifts. I'm struck in this election by the fury of the anger fueling the uh, Republican 
party and that Obama is still at 50%. There's a contradiction here in our politics. One of these two things is an anomaly. And the way the Clintons beat the right and the way Obama has beaten the right is simply by giving them enough rope to hang themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the best thing, best way to approach it. So they may finally hang themselves. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the idea. My fear is that they have tapped into a demagogue of such potency and playing with such fire in terms of people's emotions that they might do much better than most people today are anticipating. I just think it's a very volatile situation. Um, so something you just said a couple minutes ago about Obama is that he's sort of a Rockefeller Republican. And that there is a an incrementalism there. He is very much, as you put it, small C conservative instincts on a lot of things. The thing that I think has made sometimes this very hard to track correctly for people who view politics from that lens and very much I view politics from that policy lens, look, this healthcare plan is like Mitt Romney's healthcare plan and so on, is that the cultural change and shift of power that Obama represents in the most visible way that that could possibly be represented really is profound. I mean, you talk about political correctness in your piece, and I think there's probably stuff on the margins where you and I have different views on that. But the things that are shocking the Trump world are not the political correctness debates that are seizing the media punditry world. I think they are much more fundamental. Chris Rock gets up on the Oscar stage and lectures you about institutional racism. What can and can't you say about immigrants? How do you feel when Spanish is spoken to you on the phone when you call your bank? And I think that Obama and, and as you say, Clinton, even if she is in a moderate way, this George H.W. Bush to his Ronald Reagan just both of them by nature of who they are and who they will appoint and who will have elected them really do represent a somewhat profound and continuing shift in power. And when I think about what can lead to players like Trump really persisting, I think it's that. I think it is the actually correct view that something is shifting under people's feet. And they're looking for someone who is not here to make a compromise with it as a Marco Rubio is or a Paul Ryan is. They're looking for someone who says, I will stop it from happening. I will give you the power back. Right. Except he can't. Right. That is <laughs> the problem. And you see this a little bit in Britain also, like the Brexit question is really, can we stop this? You go to London and it really is an extraordinary international city. I mean, it, it's different dramatically than the London I knew as a kid or as a teenager. Small towns in England that have had the same understanding Europe has a bigger problem with this than anywhere else, which is that you have like my family, for example, still in the same, roughly the same town they've always lived in. Part of my family has lived in the same village in East Anglia since they're in the doomsday book. Like people that these are these are very old traditional communities and suddenly half the village is Polish (laughs) and if you can imagine the United States having an actual agreement with Mexico that anybody can legally enter and take whatever job they want mm-hmm. um, and also even get welfare benefits. And the question is, are we in control anymore? Is this our island? Do we determine our own future? And when we say our, we mean English. We mean the people have always lived in this country. And, and you know, I think 
these anxieties are incredibly real because the in-group, out-group instincts of human beings are very hardwired. Right. And they're not things that we're ever going to fully abolish. And look, you know, part of me agrees entirely with you that there's a problem here. Part of me... I still have this slight skepticism of the long-term stability of multicultural, multiracial societies. They are extremely new concepts. I mean, they haven't really existed the way they do now ever before. And it's an amazing, America's an amazing achievement to have done what we've done here. It's why I love it, to bring such a disparate, diverse people into some kind of union. I worry, you know, that that's hard to do without having identity cultural and, and racial and other forms of identity to triumph. And my, my general feeling is that, that actually we should move away from the politics of identity if we have any chance of building a common conversation or rebuilding complex coalitions that can actually transcend some of these problems. And, and that is proving hard to do. But I think and one of my basic worries about some of the shriller or more intense manifestations of the progressive view of identity politics is that it's, it's making everything worse than it has to be and that it reduces people to sometimes the worst elements of their identity rather than the identity of being a citizen or the French mm -hmm. idea of being a sort of ethnicity-free, identity-free citizen of a republic who's trying to weigh things and I think the way in which that's become almost a anathema in America is, is depressing. So I want to see a politics that really does try to avoid that kind of tribal or ethnic identity politics. I have a theory that the more small d democratic politics gets, the more information is not just free but is a little bit uncontrolled, the more it becomes about identity. And, and this comes from – being on the internet in this age, I think the great learning of the social web was that when people have more ability to reflect what they want, reflect it by sharing it, reflect it by being on our analytics trackers and showing what they're actually reading, because you know, when it was a newspaper, we didn't know which articles they read and which they didn't. It just turned out that people's identities were so much more powerful in structuring what they cared about than generations of, you know, primarily white male editors ha had known. And take it out of politics, right? Just look at not BuzzFeed News, but BuzzFeed, Buzz Team. And the 29 things only kids who went to Georgia Tech will know, 37 things only Persian immigrants will know. I think we were recognizing that we suppressed a lot of this for a long time. And that now, as people increasingly have the ability to show that it's not just them, that they're not the only one who's been feeling this way, that these, the microaggressions conversation is, you hear it going back and forth, but what's always interesting to me is that it got this name microaggressions, but the point of it, the reason it keeps coming up is that people are saying, no, no, you don't understand. Like, this may not seem like a big deal to you, but cumulatively, it's a huge deal to me. And I don't think just given how the informational comments is going, we're going to put that genie back in the bottle. Uh, that makes me so sad. The key word you used there was feeling. And I think that's – and part of what I got in this Trump essay is that, that the web feeling things is a very potent, much more potent than, than arguing things or having a reasoned deliberation about things. And that if feeling really – and I think you're right, the more 
small d democratic we get, the more feeling and emotion become the driving forces of our politics. And feeling and emotion are bound up with our identities in ways that we don't. And the truth is, yes, we did suppress some of the stuff because we had an idea that we're part of a civic order in which we all have to deal with crap like this. I know that people will say that white men don't or whatever, but, you know, we all deal with aspects of our identity. I mean, I've had to deal my whole life with, like, being called, I mean, being summed up as a gay, British, white, conservative, all these things that you're identified as. Mm -hmm. I've always thought that the only human happiness will be getting free of those identities. Now, it happens that in America is much more around that stuff than England ever was, partly because England was much more homogeneous. But I, I worry about that. I don't think that's a healthy approach to political compromise, political argument, especially compromise. It's hard to compromise when your feelings are involved. You just want them acknowledged or protected. You don't actually want to say, well, I can see where you're coming from too. So, or as you know, Hillary would say, so what do you actually want me to do? <laughs> it's a good question, which is, so what do what all these feelings require me to do exactly? And I think one of the weaknesses is that it's not quite clear what it should do insofar, unless it's, you know, I, I think that a, a democracy of feeling is a dangerous thing. And I think the web in its democratization has deluded people into thinking a feeling is an argument or the equivalent of an argument. It just isn't. So Virtue Normal, for example, was a book specifically written from a non-identity politics point of view. It was, I'm a reasonable person, you're a reasonable person, let's talk about this subject. Never really trying to play that card. Not because there isn't a card I could play. Mm -hmm. You know, for 18 years, I was denied security living here because I was HP positive. You know, it was, it was an unbelievably tough thing for an immigrant to be dealing with, knowing that every year he could be told, no, leave. That's not something I want to dwell on particularly or get crazy because also I think it's, I don't think it can really resolve itself the way it just makes things worse. You just become even angrier and you just get tied up in your feelings in a way that can compound these questions rather than resolve them. That's, that's my problem. There's no resolution to your feelings versus mine. Whereas if you have a set of arguments and I have a set of arguments or you have a set of proposals and I have a set of proposals, we can reach somewhere in the middle. But feeling, no, it's just who feels the most. And then it becomes how many of you are there so that your feelings trump everybody else's. And that's where we get to the logic of Trump, you know? Here's a part of this that I, just my role as a writer, struggle with a lot. And, and I'll go back to something you said about Virtually Normal and, and the original article on gay marriage. I expected when I asked that question that what you would tell me had happened is that you had been spending long nights in the library and had slowly been crafting this deeply systematic case for gay marriage. And then finally you decided, look, I just have to write this. But the way you described it to me was that this came up and you had a pretty immediate intuition about it. And that then you built the scaffolding of a very, very powerful and ultimately very consequential argument around it. And my read of a lot of the political psychology that people like Jonathan Haidt do and, and, and others is that it is much more common than we want to admit that feelings, and I think here a very close relative of feelings, tribal loyalties come first. They come automatically. And then those of us who like to operate in this 
argumentative sphere, build our arguments from the ground up on top of them, that we, that we create this logical superstructure around something that is at its core really an, an intuitive approach to politics or life. Now, that may not be the worst thing in the world. I mean, one, one thing that I think might be true is that we are in a time before some of when some of these arguments and some of these identities are just beginning to get taken more seriously. And so it'll just take time for them to be restructured into formats the political system knows what to do with, right? Which I think was true for the gay rights movement for a long time, that initially it didn't have clear asks from politics and something that you were involved in is creating a much clearer set of, of arguments that now you could say, oh, we're having a logical discussion. We're not just having a yelling fight about your identity. And so maybe we're just in a transitional phase of that. But that is why I always have a little bit of issue with the, the feelings argument, because I worry sometimes that those of us who make it, and, and I definitely feel it sometimes, are underestimating the degree to which our feelings have simply been taken seriously by the political system long enough that they have been structured into arguments and into the currency that gets taken seriously here. I would just like to know what the proposals are, you know, I mean, if something were to emerge from this. But look, I also, for, for Virtue Normal and subsequently, I went and gave talks and, and listened to the best arguments coming mm -hmm. back at me and refined the arguments and some things I changed. There is an intuition there, but there's also a, a principled political philosophy that, that attempted to make these arguments. In my view, the arguments were really what did it with marriage mm -hmm. equality, that, that we just had better arguments. And so, in fact, the arguments beat feeling. Feeling was that there was a very visceral feeling about around homosexuals. And what made all this possible was saying, let me talk to you reasonably about this as opposed to your feelings. The feelings on both sides. So what I'm saying is I, I'm not obviously one can't deny that human beings are emotional entities and that our emotions often power our mind. I mean, I, I of course, <laughs> my point is that a liberal democracy requires for it to work the ability to transcend those feelings or to translate them into reasoned deliberation or else we, there's no resolution to this at all, especially when you're with this multicultural. There's just too many feelings conflicting with too many other feelings to resolve them at all. And that takes effort. You know, it takes effort to just say, well, I know I feel this way, but am I right? You know, is this, is this the correct thing to do? And my worry about the democratization media is that it's all feeling, feeling, feeling. So that so much of now that goes on online is signaling membership of tribes, mm -hmm. signaling good standing in certain areas of our lives, as opposed to reason. And so in that sense, you know, uh, you may be right that this is going to become more powerful and more potent. But if it does, it's going to make politics more gridlocked and less able to do what it is to do and becomes a threat to the entire system itself. I mean, this is, this is really Plato's worry about late stage democracy. It's my own. It's when we are dissolving into these tribes that just simply feel or hate or love one another. And notice how the emotions are always extreme. You know, no one can just be uncomfortable with transgender women going into a female bathroom. That's all that matters. You know, that's all the feeling that matters. And even though when you actually talk them through it, this is the thing, you could say, okay, well, let's say we have your rule that it biological at birth. Don't you understand that actually that will be more 
disruptive. Right. <laughs> that you that you will. I mean, they haven't even thought this through. They're just panicking. There, and, there's also the version of this where you're, you're you're imagining this terrible predator, and then you're saying, "Listen, I just." feel very strongly that that terrible predator should be in a bathroom with little boys instead. Right. <laughs> right? That, it's actually a weird... <laughs> no, the whole thing makes no sense at all. But notice also how those feelings that people have, they're real, and they are, they're confused. A lot of people in North Carolina never met anybody who's transgender. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a different, scary thing. Instead of... But the response is they're haters. The emotions that people are allowed to feel have also been turned into the most extreme forms, whereas in fact, they're just actually confused and uncomfortable. And that's a different place than bigotry. What I found with the gay rights situation was that we, we changed 30% of the public's views on this. So that the middle 30, we've shifted to our side from their side. And we did it through argument. But we also did it, of course, through, and you're right about this, through coming out. I mean, because that has an emotional component to it that, that really helps get through. I would argue that if we're going to have feelings, can we try and be more subtle about what we're talking about? <laughs> what happens is the polarization of feelings means that we have an even more irresolvable political project. And look, we all have, we have to compromise. There has to be these weighing, that's what our system is about. If it can't do that, then the whole system is finished. And that's a dangerous thing to be, which is why I'm on the side of resisting <laughs> Identity politics and the side of resisting feeling, even though you're completely right, obviously, that we're all emotional beings. But the founders, I mean, the the great enlightenment thinkers who created the system firmly believed that these feelings were precisely the problem, that we must enter into engaged reasoned deliberation or the whole thing will fall apart. And that's why the danger of something like a charismatic demagogue who, who really exploits people's feelings can rise swiftly out of nowhere to real power. And the truth is the feelings that Trump is evoking are far stronger than the feelings that Hillary Clinton can or will evoke. And you want a republic of feelings, you're going to end up with some of the worst feelings you can imagine. And that prompting, again, a reaction that becomes even more polarized. That's my worry about a feeling-based politics. And insofar as maybe our transition to a more diverse multicultural society involves a lot of feelings, it's a very dangerous and treacherous time for our liberal democracy. What I worry about is is that the liberal tradition is being eclipsed by, and indeed the conservative position, those two traditions that can interact with one another and have a conversation with one another on rational grounds are being supplanted by an extremely emotional progressive left and an extremely emotional reactionary right. Those two forces can eclipse the very processes of deliberation that, that are essential to the actual functioning of our republic. So that's actually a good segue into, because I recognize I've kept you here for, I think, like 12 hours now. <laughs> Um, I'm going to have to go to the toilet soon. <laughs> that just shows in, you I'm 20 years older in some, than you. <laughs> uh, into, into reading habits, which is how we tend to close out the podcast. Okay, good, yeah. Who are the writers who you disagree with and always make a point to read? I mean, I will read Paul Krugman, for example, even though at this point I agree with a lot of what he's saying because I think he's just persuaded me on the macroeconomics. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a mixed bag, but yeah... I'll read Krauthammer, 
whom I disagree with on most things at this point, simply because I think he's he's still a, a first class mind. On the left, who do I I will read um, Chait. I don't want to get into hate reads because that's not what you mean, right? right? <laughs> no, I mean uh, people who you you read them and you think everything there is wrong, but you're just always fascinated by the way they come at it. Yeah, uh, Rod Dreher, like mm-hmm. the American conservative, who, who who not everything is wrong, but right. a hell of a lot is. But I always find him a worthwhile read because he's he's real. He's totally real. What's a website you check regularly that you think more people should be reading for news and? And you know, I've been doing my best not to do that. But, uh, I, you know, I have to say I'm, a, I'm still an old-fashioned memorandum person. Oh, yeah? And this is very retro. But I, as a simple shorthand of yeah. what people are actually talking about, what's actually out there, it's a good, quick read. But I tell you, my reading habits now, I read, I mean, when I was recovering, and I'm going to try and recover again, I really researched myself the morning and evening briefings at the New York Times and a quick glance at memorandum. And then I'd crack open a book. How did pulling out of that, the sort of crush of information and the streams of information you learned before, do you think that you've gotten a clearer view of these issues in a way? Or do you think that you've just stopped thinking about them as much? Both. (laughs) But I think it helped. I mean, honestly, I think if I'd been blogging the Trump phenomenon, I don't think I'd have been able to write the piece I just wrote. Because the thing is, you get... And the thing with Trump is that particularly you get sucked into the more, as it were. Absolutely. You start treating people legitimately. You shouldn't be treating legitimately. You, you, you're just driven by the news cycle to be in some ways complicit in this farce of a candidacy. And so being outside of it for a while and also looking at observing it slowly and like seeing and then reading stuff that, that it reminds you of and – and gathering your thoughts together and then like just trying to write something that you feel could stand the test of time or or might not, but nonetheless would be a deep dive. Yeah, I, I just don't think you can have the mental energy or space to do that when you're blogging every day or e- tweeting e- every day. EJ Dion had this great line where he said that it is going to be extremely hard for us to remain shocked for six months, yeah. but it is absolutely essential that we try. I agree. Well, and that's, I think that's the great danger of this election, that, that we will normalize behavior in Trump just because we'll get used to it. What I find more disturbing is that, yes, but the process-oriented coverage of him, which he feeds constantly, he'd much rather talk about the process of his election than what he's actually proposing. In other words, taking our attention off the fact that mm-hmm. he is proposing a population transfer of 11 million people of largely of a different race out of this country, which is an unprecedented act of fascistic proportions, or that he is still insisting upon a religious test for entry into the United States, which is itself almost an abolition of America, that he has invoked, condoned, and encouraged violence against his political opponents, and certainly not disowned it in as firm and as categorical a way. I mean, the idea that you're going to pick up the legal fees of someone who punched someone in the face. Yeah, I don't think that's disowning it exactly. It sure isn't. And and someone who actually defends grotesque torture or the murder of children, innocent children, as a legitimate part of American foreign policy, these things are so outrageous. They're so foul. 
treating him as anything but essentially a fascist threat to our entire way of life. I mean, again, you know, I think we laugh at it a little bit because we don't want to say those words. But that's what he's saying. And a lot of what people are assuming is he doesn't mean it. But you build a movement around those things and you get elected on it. You don't have much leeway afterwards. And that would, I mean, that seems to me the thing we mustn't lose sight of. That what he's actually proposing is such a breach with the norms of Western civilization that he should be regarded as anathema, not just deplorable, but outside of our discourse. Do you think that regarding him that way, this is something that, that someone who's more Trump sympathetic said to me the other day, that, that this argument, this regarding him as anathema, regarded, regarding him as quasi-fascist, as racist, as, as all that, that that is what feeds him, not just him, but that is what feeds his base at this kind of effort among elites to do boundary setting. Now, I recognize that even if you buy that, it doesn't mean one shouldn't do it because they're just moral stands that maybe should be taken. That there's an argument that just trying to say this is out of bounds, he exists symbiotically on top of that. You just say that. it's wrong. I mean, out of bounds is, is in some ways, it is just outrageously immoral and wrong is more what I'm saying. It's important to, to say this is, in other words, maybe not out of bounds, which is a move that, that people would understandably respond to, but say this is the unique in the history of American political history that someone at this level of the game is arguing for these kinds of policies. That seems to me to be a theme that must be consistently pursued. And it's, you know, it's tough. And cable news is just a horror show. They've just basically completely surrendered. And the other problem with the media is that, it, it, as you know, and I know, it's in such a desperate state that Trump is sort of an adrenaline shot to a sort of slightly dying patient. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's they're not likely to say no. And so he's got them. And he knows it. And he absolutely There are things it. that Trump does not understand well, but he understands the media incredibly well. He really does. He is the most sophisticated candidate in terms of the media that we've probably seen in a you know. And Hillary Clinton is not. No. And he, the people who are really fired up for him, vastly outnumber the number of people who are really fired up for her. Yeah, but I, I do think that by the same token, the people who are really fired up against him probably outnumber the, both of those groups. Let's hope so. I mean, the thing, thing about the normalization of him and the way in which he's being treated is that it can calm people down and think things are going to be okay um, or that he's somewhat acceptable. And again, the, the binary, he said this, she said that model of news gives him legitimacy, which is why I frankly thought it was essential, much more important that the Republican Party deny him the nomination than that he lose in a general election because, because I think he's much more dangerous from now on, which is why I think the response of Republicans is so important. I mean, good for Paul Ryan, who at the very least refused to endorse the other day. But Rick Perry, who said uh, Trump is a cancer on conservatism, just also said he would be happy to serve as Trump's vice president. There is among people who are clearly not going to be Trump's vice president a willingness to sell out their own legacy that I do not really understand. I do not understand what the upside of it is to not at this moment, just if you know better and you know, you listen to the speeches these guys give, they know better stand up and say, nope, this is wrong and I'm because not part of it. Because they smell power and a lot of these people have lost power, whether it's Perry or Christie. 
And I think they sense, to be honest with you, a mass movement. And polit- a lot of these people are shameless politicians who are in it for all the, all the usual narcissistic and, and megalomaniac reasons. And look at Christie. I mean, it's, it's just it's really, really something. It is. And, and that's when you started getting into this feeling of like, I mean, when someone defects to Trump, I, I don't feel like I did when someone would defect to, I don't know, Bernie or Clinton in 08 or something. I don't. I feel like they've joined Scientology or something. I feel, I feel like, well, they've gone to the dark side. I really do. My own feeling is that Clinton has to make this about Trump, not her. I think that is her feeling as well. She has to get out of the way. Because she's nobody likes her. Their their view, <laughs> uh, their view as I understand it, is that there is a much bigger potential victory in an election that is about Donald Trump's basic fitness for the presidency than in an election about the policy differences between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Yeah, much less a positive vision from Hillary Clinton. It's got to be what the English, the pro EU British, are calling Project Fear. Uh, this is <laughs> this is what we need. We need project fear. We need we need, we need people to be terrified that this man might get his hands on nuclear codes. And I think calling him a bigot isn't going to help. I think calling him unstable, unqualified, and radical, but mainly unstable because he is unstable. I mean, he's emotionally clearly a basket case. That's that's the way to do it. I mean, speaking as someone who can't stand the Clintons. I have pretty good cred on this, but I'm going to do my duty as a patriot, really. But don't, please don't make me have to like her, all right? Like, please don't force her into my living room all the time because it's going to make me not want to vote for her. So, so make this all about him because after all, the media won't, can't help itself with that anyway. So you're, you're actually going with the grain, and then just constantly, and don't bash him on all this hatred of these various groups. Bash him on how crazy he is, how unstable he is, how, how he said things that would, I mean, just yesterday, you know. <laughs> well, we won't. We'll just we'll get a deal on the debt at some point, you know. I mean, yeah. that stuff is just, I know that stuff's hard to tell people, but it's, that's the kind of stuff that really matters, I think. Or that ending NATO or my own feeling is, for example, that David Cameron should not have said that he's going to meet with him. I think that foreign leaders should. With Trump? Yeah. I didn't see that. He said he, will, he would be prepared to meet with such a person out of respect of the wishes of the people who voted for him. Mm-hmm. But he's, he's said that he's wrong. And I think people, I think the military retire, going to have to be retired, but people just say the idea that NATO should basically be over or that we, we are happy to see nuclear proliferation or that we, we keep open the possibility of using nuclear weapons in regional warfare is just a threat to the country. He needs to be slapped down by a few generals. I am going to be very interested to see where the outspoken generals fall. On the one hand, if the Clinton campaign is good at nothing, they are good at getting large numbers of important people to sign open letters. On the other hand, which generals end up on TV all the time talking about this? Because if there's already one, and I'm, I'm blanking on his name, and I'm worried if I get it wrong, I've smeared someone terribly, but who's been out saying a lot of very nice things about Donald Trump. There's been talk about uh, generals, Trump's VP, although now Trump is saying he'd want somebody more political. But there is a very martial element to Donald Trump. And it would be one of the few kinds of elite signals that I think is actually an effective counter on him is the military signal. Just because having folks in the military say, 
I would not want the people whose lives depended on on us under the command of this guy's impulses is actually, I think, both true and, and, and credible. But there can often be a distance between where the bulk of opinion is and who is reticent about offering that opinion. At some point, these people like Colin Powell's got to weigh in. Right. People, people who, who have credibility can just say – the trouble with the military stuff is, of course, I have no doubt that Trump is very popular right. with people in the military. Just as I think he's probably got like a hefty, huge majority among cops in this country – you know, the other thing is he's playing he's playing a classic male card. I mean, this is the other thing that people haven't quite got their hands around, that this, this really is a gendered election and that there's an appeal to men that's as powerful as the appeal to women. Mm-hmm. And especially men in this culture, or other like whites in general, feel extremely conflicted about their role in society, especially especially given the, the collapse of status for for people who are the working man, as it were. It's a lot to absorb. We've the cultural and social changes of the last thirty years have been really phenomenal. And it's not un, it's perfectly understandable that people have a hard time coming to terms with them and feeling lost in the context, which is why I don't think her handing out women cards is the best thing to do. But I, I just don't think that. I think that's because Democrats are a little autistic when it comes to men. Um, all right. that's a. Let's go to the last question here. What are three books that influenced you that you think people should read? Well, I mean, I don't know where to begin. I mean, because, I, you know, what, what does one do with, with all the political philosophy or with history or with um, – and I'm not going to ask people to read Oakshot because it's hard. I can tell you the books that have influenced me. Yeah. Maybe that's better. That's um, perfect. Again, I think Christianity, Homosexuality, and Social Tolerance by John Boswell is it was a landmark book. Augustine's Confessions is one of the most remarkable books ever written. It's almost as if this man was born today and yet is seeing the world through an incredibly different lens. I think Montaigne's Collected Essays the other essential component to a civilized person's reading material. And I think the other book that truly affected me was George Orwell's Collected Essays, which when I read them as a teenager made me want to be a writer. I would throw in T.S. Eliot's Collected Poems (laughs) (laughs) just because they're also incredible. The three or four books that I I think of are really just sort of timeless and stunning. I think all through, I reread Augustine lately this last year and was blown away again by it. it it's it's a, just a staggering achievement. I'm one of the most remarkable men who's ever lived, that man. And uh, the mind that he had was just simply staggering. Montaigne is just simply hilarious and brilliant and beautiful. And uh, Orwell... And it's hard to explain why Orwell is so important, but the human empathy and the the ability to use simple English to truly – it was the first book I read as a teenager where I was like, I can understand everything he's saying to me. He wasn't attempting to mm-hmm. show off in any way, and yet he was saying such incredibly complicated and interesting things. And his heart was always in it. And Eliot is just uh, Eliot. You know, it's like um, – it's the liturgy of the modern world. At Harvard, I, I um, turned his four quartets into a play, I, and then I set it to 
Messian's quartet for the end of time. And he remains for me, I mean, he's, in terms of Christianity, Eliot's vision of modernity and the wasteland that we're in is still compelling to me. So those would be the books I would, I would pick. Andrew Sullivan, thank you very much. You're so welcome. That was Andrew Sullivan. Thank you very much to him for joining me on the podcast, for spending that much time here. Thank you to all of you for, for tuning in. As always, The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. We will see you next week.